Okay, a few uh, quick housekeeping things before we get into this lesson. I don't know if you've known this or not, but our church is growing, including this classroom. Uh, 98% of our seats were filled last week. We had more people in here than we've ever had, which is great. Yes, super good blessing. It also means that in the next few weeks, we're going to be moving this class to the sanctuary. Okay? That's great. Yes, good. That's good excitement. Now, we're going to ask you when we do that, we will, we will let you know. And in case you don't know, so you're like, Zach, how am I supposed to know if we're supposed to go to the sanctuary? It'll be easy. You'll come here and the doors will be closed and there'll be a sign that says, go to sanctuary. So don't worry about it. You're not going to not know what to do. You'll know what to do. <clears throat> but I want to remind you of that. Uh, when we move into the sanctuary, that'll probably be in the next, either next week or the week after, uh, please sit up front. One of the things we really like about this room is that it's close and we can make jokes. We're kind of a, you know, we can uh, bounce ideas off each other and be a family. So please sit close when we do that, but we will be moving to the sanctuary uh, for this class over the next one to two weeks just because we're outgrowing our space in here and uh, we can't add very many more rows in here. So uh, let's talk about what we are getting into today, which are some traditional proofs for the existence of God. That's what we're going to be talking about this week and next week. Uh, These are proofs that we come to the, these are proofs that we come to know the existence of God apart from scripture, okay? It's very easy to prove the existence of God to somebody who already believes in the Bible. You just like open it, right? But these proofs are for those who uh, don't accept that God exists from scripture. And so there are four of them that we're going to be going over. Today, we're going to be going over what is called the teleological and the moral argument for God's existence. And then next week, we're actually going to be doing the two stronger arguments. So uh, the cosmological argument and what is called the ontological argument, which is hands down the strongest argument for God's existence. We'll be doing that uh, next week. But today, we're just going to be doing the teleological and the moral argument for God's existence. But before we get into it, let me start with a little quote by John Calvin, who says this. Therefore, since the beginning of the world, there has been no region, no city, in short, no household that could do without religion. There lies in this a tacit confession of a sense of deity inscribed in the hearts of all. From this, we conclude that it is not a doctrine that must first be learned in school, but one of which each of us is master from his mother's womb and which nature itself permits no one to forget. This is a famous concept for Calvin. It's called the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. What he is saying is every human, every society, every culture that's ever existed has this innate knowledge that God exists. Okay? This is why there has never just naturally arisen an atheistic society. You have to teach man to be an atheist. Mankind is naturally a worshiper. So societies that are atheistic, you've had to, they've had to do brainwashing and indoctrination and, and really inculcating that into the society. Mankind, by nature, is a worshiper. There's something in our hearts that from our mother's womb knows that God exists and knows that we've fallen short. And so that is what Calvin is pointing out to here. Now, before we get into these arguments, let me explain the purpose of apologetics, what it is and is not. Okay. When you hear us use throughout this whole semester the term apologetics, let me explain what that does and that doesn't mean. That does not mean that we are apologizing like we're sorry. We're like, God exists. I am so sorry. That is the worst news ever. That's not what we mean. Okay. The word comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a defense. It's a word that stands up for something. So Socrates, when he is being condemned for corrupting the youth, he gives an apologia. He gives a defense for his case. In fact, that's actually where we get our word apology. You can't read the English definition back onto the Greek. It goes the other way. When I've offended somebody and I say, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? I then give reasons. I give a defense why I was so dumb and made this mistake and why you should forgive me. And so that is why it is called apologetics. Uh, Let me give you the purpose of arguments for God's existence, the purpose of apologetics. First of all, it encourages those who already have faith. 
Okay, it encourages those who already have faith. I want you to know, uh, if you are struggling, if you are doubting, I'm hoping that these arguments encourage you in your faith. Number two, to defend the intelligibility of Christianity. Lost people need to see that Christianity has good answers to important questions. How many of your friends believe in uh, Roman mythology? Probably none of them, right? Because it's dumb and it's silly and the gods are just like us or whatever it is, right? You don't want Christianity looking like that. So part of the job of an apologist is to show that Christianity has good answers and good defenses and good reasoning and good thinking and these kind of things. I hate when people say, just have faith, because that's not even what the Bible will say. Paul will say, Jesus was raised, and if you don't believe me, there are 500 other people that have seen him, and you can go ask him. He gives proof. He gives evidence. Our faith is not a blind faith. It is a very informed faith. Number three, to critique non-theistic worldviews. We don't just defend. We go on the attack. So you have, on the one hand, what are called apologetics, defending the faith. On the other hand, you have what are called polemics, which is attacking the non-faith, attacking your opponents. That is what I most enjoy, okay? I will just sometimes, if I'm having a debate with a guy who's not a Christian, I'll just say, forget Christianity, let's pretend that that's false for a second. Now, let me show you how dumb your worldview is and just tear it apart. That's my favorite, okay? That is what's called polemics, so we don't just defend, we go on the attack. And then number four, you need to understand this, it is not actually to convert the most hardened atheist, okay? Did anybody here really come to faith because of the teleological argument? Somebody said, well, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And you're like, well, that makes total sense. I would like to become a Christian now. No, your heart was wrecked by the gospel, okay? You're not saved apart from the preaching of the gospel. All these arguments do is show the existence of some powerful generic God. They don't actually give you enough information to be saved. For that, you need special revelation. You need the scriptures. Or to quote one professor I had, the purpose of apologetics is not to change the heart, but to shut the mouth, okay? I like that one. The idea is it's not really going to convert the most hardened atheist. What it's going to do is show them that they're not quite as bright as they think that they are. So with that in mind, let's get into our first argument. Forgive me, I'm going to have to drink water throughout this. I've got a little bit of the crud, whatever that is. Let's get into our first argument here. The argument from design. This is typically called the teleological argument. Sometimes it's called the physico-theological argument. That's the uh, name that uh, Immanuel Kant gave to it, one of the great critiquers of these uh, arguments. The reason it's called the teleological argument comes from this Greek word, telos, okay? Telos means end, goal, or purpose. So when we talk about an argument from design, we're talking about how we look around the world and see that things were created with design. They were created with an end. They were created with a purpose, And in fact, when we later on in the semester, when we give a critique of atheism, one of the things we'll talk about is atheism has no way to understand teleology. It has no way to understand purpose. So the atheist will say, yeah, God doesn't exist, but what we're trying to do is pass on our genes. And you say, wait a second. So there's a goal. There's an end. There's a purpose. Well, that assumes design. That assumes intelligence. If we're just trying to pass on our genes and survival of the fittest and these kind of things, you've already assumed a teleology. The goal is for the survival of the fittest, the strongest, you know, creatures to pass on their genes. Why? As soon as you ask that why question, you've moved back into design. You've moved back into mind. You've moved back into teleology. So we'll talk more about that when we get into atheism. But the idea of the teleological argument is simply that it is an argument from design. You look around at what's been created and you see how things are designed. You see how they function well. You see how they have a tendency to work towards some goal, some end, some purpose, okay? major proponents of this argument, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics, Thomas Aquinas, William Paley, Antony Flew, etc. Okay. 
Uh, now, let me give the, an explanation of the argument. The argument is simply this. When you look around at the world, you don't just have random matter. You don't just have random chaos. What you have is design. You have things that work well. You have things that move towards some ends. You have things that move towards some purpose, okay? If you think about how complex a single cell is, much less a human being that can talk and think and make jokes and interact and create a space shuttle and go to the moon, you start to realize, wait a second, this seems to be impossible without some type of design. This seems to be impossible without some type of end or goal. That is simply the teleological argument. So, in your own words, not using my words, what is the teleological argument? This is my favorite part where people throw things out. Everything has a purpose. And if it has a purpose, it assumes design. It assumes intentionality. It assumes a divine mind, okay? It assumes a divine mind. Now, this is an argument that's not just something we're going to look at philosophically. This is one that the Bible itself uses. Let me give you a few passages. Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse, okay? One of the things that Paul is going to say in Romans 1 is that just by looking at creation, every human intrinsically knows that there is an eternal, invisible spirit that has created everything. That's what it's going to say. That there is enough knowledge of God in creation to damn you, but not enough knowledge of God in creation to save you. For that, you need the Bible. You need special revelation. You need the gospel. But you can look around at the stars and you just are overwhelmed. You can look at a waterfall. You can look at mountains. You can see kids laugh as they play and you start to think, there's something behind all this. There is something behind all this. And Paul will point that out. Isaiah 40, 26 says this, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So notice there's something about looking up and seeing the things that God has created, and you then ask yourself, where did these things come from? Psalm 19.1, we read this during our night of worship. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Notice that everything that God has made is screaming out 24-7, God made me, God made me, God made me. It's why they're beautiful. It's why a sunset isn't just functional. It's why it's beautiful. It's why God, God could have made it where our bodies just function by eating a flavorless paste. We could just eat a flavorless white paste, and that would bring us nutrients. But instead, what does he give man? He gives us filet mignon, and he gives us lobster, and he gives us wine, and he gives us cheeseburgers, and he gives us bacon. We're no longer under the Old Testament law. He gives us all kinds of good things to enjoy. Or as the Bible would say, God who richly gives us all things to enjoy. God is gracious, and so you see beauty, you see intelligence, you see design in those things. Let me give you a great quote from uh, Thomas Aquinas, the uh, probably greatest thinker in the Middle Ages, uh, except for Augustine. He says this, we see how some things like natural bodies work for an end, even though they have no knowledge. This fact that they nearly always operate in the same way and so as to achieve the maximum good makes this obvious and shows that they attain their end by design, not by chance. Now, things which have no knowledge tend towards an end only through the agency of something which knows and also understands. What he's saying is, if something is moving towards its desired end, even if it's an unintelligible object, a rock, a comet, the moon circling the earth, whatever it is, then it therefore has to be based on another mind, something else which understands. As in the case of an arrow, which requires an archer. There is therefore an intelligent being by whom all natural things are directed to their end. This we call God. 
okay? This we call God. So again, when you have design, when you have goal, when you have purpose, that automatically assumes intelligence. It automatically assumes, assumes mind, okay? So anytime you hear somebody who's an atheist saying, this cell replicates because of this reason, as soon as they've given a purpose, they've stepped away from randomness. They've stepped away from chaos. They've stepped away from those kind of things. They've instantly jumped into theology. They don't want to be in theology. They want to pretend like you can think about things apart from God, but you can't actually do that because God made everything. And so therefore they are assuming God even as they try to deny him, okay? Now, one of the most famous uh, kind of defenses of this comes from a guy named William Paley who uses this example. So we've got a lot of long quotes from guys today. So I'm gonna explain these after I read them. Let me read this quote from Paley. Suppose I found a watch upon the ground and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think that for anything I knew the watch might have always been there. Yet why should not this answer serve for the watch as well as for a stone that happened to be lying on the ground? For this reason and for no other, namely that in the different parts had all been differently shaped from what they are, if a different size from what they are or placed after any other manner or in any order than that in which they are placed, either no motion at all would have been carried on in the machine or none would have answered the use that is now served by it. So here's what he's saying. If you were to walk along a beach and you were to find a watch, okay, what makes that different than finding a stone? Well, the stone is not, I mean, it is designed by God. It's not complex. It's very simple. The stone just kind of bees a stone. There's some good English for you. It just kind of sits there. But when you have a watch, Not only is there a beauty here, but if one little part is off, the entire watch doesn't work. You have to have the gears one way, and you have to have the hands one way, and you have to have the numbers that are in, you know, sequence and all these kind of things for the watch to exist. And if one little thing was off, that wouldn't work. And he says, to imagine that the watch has just always been there is insane, but also to imagine that the watch just comes about by randomness is insane. How much more complicated is the human mind than is a watch? How much more complicated are, is the solar system than a human watch? And if we assume one is designed, it's insane that we don't assume the other one is designed. Alistair McGrath, speaking of Paley's argument, says this. Paley argued, the same complexity and utility evident in the design and functioning of a watch can also be discerned in the natural world. Each feature of a biological organism, like that of a watch, showed evidence of being designed in such a way as to adapt the organism to survival within its environment. Complexity and utility are observed. The conclusion that they were designed and constructed by God, Paley holds, is as natural as it is correct, okay? You need to understand, your faith should not be challenged when somebody talks about how your body is adapted for survival, okay? The reason that that happens is because God is smart. He's made your body that way, okay? Why do you see more colors and shades of green than any other color? Yes, for survival, but guess what? Because God wants you to survive. He doesn't want you to get eaten by that tiger or whatever it is. He wants you to survive and for humans to replicate and to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So when you hear that your body adapts to this, or that your muscles get stronger when you work out, or that you, uh, you know, people living in certain conditions change whatever features over time, that's because God is smart. That's not because there is no God, okay? That's not because there is no God. Let me give you just some random weird examples of design. Are you ready for these? These are just for fun, just to drive this point home. One, your eyebrows. Your eyebrows are one of the few places on your body where the hair grows up. Your hair grows up and to the side, okay? It goes up and then swooshes to the side on your eyebrows, okay? Why? Because God loves you enough to keep sweat out of your eyes. What happens is as sweat goes down, if you had no eyebrows, they would just drip down, 
okay? Your little uh, bone here wouldn't really protect you. It would drip down and hit your eyelashes. It would be awful. But the sweat goes down and around your eyes so that you can see. You had these two little windshield wipers right here on your head, and it is an evidence of God's good design. How about this one? A woman's body can feed her baby milk and the baby not get sick even if the mother has certain illnesses. How crazy is that? There are certain illnesses where if a mother is uh, breastfeeding her child, the baby doesn't get that illness, even though the mom has it. Even though that illness is going all throughout the mom's body, there are these protective measures in place so that the baby doesn't get sick. It's an evidence of design. Communication. This one blows my mind. Okay, this one's, if I think too much about this, I freak out. I take this hole in my face that I use to eat, and I open it, and I make noises and you know what I'm saying, and we can communicate, and I can make stuff happen. That's insane. And not only can I describe things with my words like I'm doing right now, because you're all listening to me, I can make things happen with my words. When I'm doing a wedding and I say I now pronounce you husband and wife, I'm not describing something. I'm not saying they're already married. I'm making them married with my words. It's crazy. When you christen a ship, When you make a promise, you're actually doing things with words. You're making things with words just from opening this pie hole and making grunts. It's insane. And the fact that you're giggling means you understand me, which is even more insane. I have a thought. I open my mouth and I go, "Uh, uh, uh," and I make noises, and then you have the thought. That's crazy. That is crazy. And it is evidence of design. The earth's tilt. If we were tilted one more degree one way, the earth would all freeze. One more degree the other way, the earth would all burn up. Everything is perfect just as it should be. I read actually two different church fathers this last week who talk about our rear end being designed by God because it is such a great instrument for sitting. Anything can become a chair, a stone, a rock, uh, the ground, because God so loves you, he didn't want you to have to just sit there on your bones but instead, you have a rear end. And how ungrateful we are for that, they say. <laughs> Those are the early church fathers. They're really big into uh, making sure everything is focused on the glory of God. Um, another one is gravitational constants. Another one, I think this one's interesting, DNA. Let me tell you why DNA is really interesting. DNA is not like a code. It is a code. It is literally a code, so much so that you can change DNA and something turns out exactly the way the scientist wants it to turn out. So here's what you have. If the world is just random and everything was just created by randomness and there is no God, how do you get, again, not something that's like a code, a code that works 100% of the time? It's absolutely crazy. There was a biology professor at Yale University, and then he went to George Mason University. His name is Harold Merowitz. Okay, that's a good name, Harold Merowitz. And uh, he put out a publication that was very controversial, and it's very technical, so we're not going to, like, read it all. It's very scientific. He is a mathematician and a biologist. And what he was trying to do is he was trying to calculate the probability that one tiny living organism could come about by random process. Okay, that's it. Not, Not something complex like an elephant, but one random tiny living being could come into existence from just random processes. And so he set up this big experiment and did all these kind of things. And what he published was that the chance of that happening was 10 to the 340 millionth power. If you don't know what that means, that's one chance in 10 with 340 million zeros after it. Not one in 340 million. One in 34 with, or one in... 10 with 340 million zeros after it. Now, if I said this to you, if I said, okay, let's take a little wager. 
I've got a huge jar of rocks here, okay? And there are 10 to the, with 340 million zeros after it of these are black rocks, and there's one white rock somewhere in there. You get to close your eyes and you get to grab one. Would you take that bet? Okay, that is the bet you are taking if you are saying that everything has come about by random process, by random mutation without design, okay? You can uh, Google his name later if you want to read more about that experiment. Now, (laughs) you might say, Zach, this is so clear. I mean, obviously things are designed. Obviously they have teleology, they have purpose. How can people not see that, uh, that God exists? Well, let me give you some critiques of the argument. We here at Parkway don't want to give you softballs that some you know, undergraduate philosophy professor can shoot down. We want to you to actually see what, uh, what the critiques are against this argument. Let me give you a few. Number one, there are parts of the world that don't look designed. How about cancer, when your body reproduces cells to attack itself? That doesn't seem very designed. Or when animals rape other animals? That doesn't seem very designed and these kind of things. There's a lot of things you could look around and say, if we're just simply going Romans 1, we're just simply looking at uh, the world that God has made, some of it looks designed, but some of it looks really poorly designed. David Hume, the uh, brilliant philosopher who was a, uh, what I call a happy atheist, he was very congenial, liked to play around and play jokes, but also was uh, one of the most uh, aggressive critiquers of Christianity, thought that you can only infer a God as great as the messed up world that you observe. So he said, yeah, God might exist, but if so, he's only as good of a creator as tapeworms or as a mosquito or something like this that seems to be a problem for humanity, seems to be something that doesn't look designed. Next, this is a good argument. That doesn't mean that there's a God who designed the world. It just means that it looks designed. Do you understand the difference there? All we observe is something that looks designed. We are the ones making a leap when we say, therefore, someone designed it. Okay? And so here's what Hume would say. <clears throat> the curious adapting of means to ends throughout all nature resembles exactly, though it much exceeds, the produ- productions of human contrivance, on human, of human designs, thought, wisdom, and intelligence. Since, therefore, the effects resemble each other, we are led to infer by all the rules of analogy that the causes also resemble and that the author of nature is somewhat similar to the mind of man, though possessed of much larger faculties, proportioned to the grandeur of the work which he has executed. By this argument, a posteriori, that means after experience, and by this argument alone, do we prove at once the existence of a deity and his similarity to human mind and intelligence. Here's what Hume is saying. We look at something that seems designed like Paley's watch, and then we say, well, we know that we design watches as humans, so then when we look at the universe, we say, well, there must be like a really big mind that designed that, and he says, you're making a leap there. All you have is we know of things we design, and we assume a creator. And therefore, because there seems to be some areas in the world that look designed, though a lot of them don't, we then jump to the uh, conclusion of a big creator. And he says that is a logical fallacy, okay? <clears throat> Number three, <clears throat> we don't have anything we know is designed to compare it to. The universe is not like a watch, okay? So if I have a watch and I want to know if this is designed, I can take something else humans have made that is designed. Give me an example. A radio, excellent. You could have named so many things. A radio is perfect. I can say the radio has little gears and the watch has little gears. The radio has a battery and the watch has a little battery, whatever. And I can say these both look designed. What can I compare the universe to? I don't have another universe that I'm looking at that I know is created by God so that I can compare this one to so that I know that God created it, okay? That I know that God created it. Fourth critique. How do we know that there are not several gods who made the universe? Or how do we know the creator has the properties of the God of the Bible? 
okay? So what people will say is, okay, let's say that there is some being that created the universe. Does that mean he is the infinite, bodiless, trinitarian, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the Bible, who the second person of the Trinity is, comes down and takes on humanity, who dies for our sins, and that faith that by faith in him alone we can be saved? I don't see any of that in creation. All I see is maybe there's a powerful being, may not even be a personal being. They're just this unmoved mover, this first cause that caused everything, and that's all that I get to in the argument. Voltaire said, from this sole argument, meaning the teleological argument, I cannot conclude anything further than it is probable that an intelligent and superior being has skillfully prepared and fashioned the matter. I cannot conclude from that alone that this being has made matter out of nothing, as the Bible teaches, and that he is infinite in every sense. So he's saying, I'll grant you your argument. There could be a being that started everything. But I can't leap from that to say this being's infinite, like the God of the Bible. And this being created that matter ek nihilo, out of nothing, or something like that. That's all I can jump to in the argument. Number five, how do we know that there are not other universes that are not designed? Okay? So again, you can use the word universe in different ways. One, you can just mean it to, you can use it to mean everything that's created. Okay? There's God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then there's the universe. There's everything that's created. The other way you can use the term universe is to talk about universes, plural, okay? Other galaxies and solar systems and and things like that that we don't even know about. So how do we know? Maybe this one's designed, but maybe there are other ones that are not designed, and so God wouldn't then be sovereign overall. He might be sovereign over this one tiny universe, but maybe that's just one in a billion, and so how do we know that those are not undesigned, okay? Number six, This this one's a tough one. Are you really saying that God made blood-sucking mosquitoes, tapeworms, and everything that has only ever preyed on other creatures, germs, etc.? You realize your body is not just one living organism, you. You realize there's like millions and billions of little living organisms inside of you, okay? So as we go back in fossil records, there are some creatures that it appears have only ever preyed on other creatures, not to mention germs and E. coli and the little fingery things in your intestines that eat up all your food and all that kind of stuff, okay? So what we like to think as Christians is, okay, God just made mosquitoes and they just ate fruit or something. And then when the fall happened, they just all of a sudden started sucking blood. But we don't have any actual evidence of that. All the old mosquitoes we have, they're designed to suck blood. What do we do with those kind of things, okay? Further thoughts. Let me give a few responses to some of these. But again, I don't want to give you the responses to all of these because I want to challenge you. I want you to wrestle. I don't want you to parrot me and say, well, Pastor Zach said this, and so therefore that's... I want you to wrestle with these things. I want you to have an informed faith. I want you to go through the whole process of living, dying, and being damned to realize who God is and what he has given you in Christ. That's what I want you to do. As Luther would say, it's not studying books that makes a theologian, it's living, dying, and being damned. You've got to go through the wrestle. You've got to go through the process. You have to question your faith, and you have to know that if you're wrong, you're possibly condemned, okay, if you're following the wrong God. And then beyond that, if God doesn't exist, then your life is meaningless. Your life is meaningless. Murder's not bad, whatever it is. So let me give you a few thoughts on some of these, and the rest of them you can wrestle with in your community group. How about that? The bad things we see in the world are due to sin. This is really important that you understand this. So when the atheist says, well, if God created everything good, why do animals consume other animals? And why does a monkey throw its baby down from the trees and kill it? And why do we see homosexuality even with other animals in nature and these kind of things? Here's the answer. Because what's natural today is not natural. Everything today is after Genesis 3. God created the world with perfect design and order. It is good. It's very good. And because sin has corrupted everything, that's why things are broken. Okay? 
So to see gay penguins doesn't mean that homosexuality is okay. What it means is humanity's sin has so affected creation, which we were supposed to shepherd, that our sin has even affected the created order. As Paul would say, the ground bears, or as Genesis would say, the ground bears thorns and thistles. Paul would say all creation groans, waiting to be redeemed, okay? And so you need to understand, this is really important, when somebody tries to point out something that doesn't look designed, we need to realize it might not look designed now, but you would have to make an argument that it wasn't designed Genesis 1 and 2, and you can't do that, right? So the things in the world that are broken are, do, do that, are that way because of sin, okay? A next thought, <clears throat> Is this the best of all possible worlds? Let me give you a little uh, theology and philosophy here. Let me ask you this question. Out of all the ways God could have made the universe, is this the best one or could he have made a better universe? What do you think? Take a second, think about it. Think about it. Who thinks God could have made a better universe than this? Few people? Who thinks God could not have made a better universe than this? Who is too cowardly to vote? Okay, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <clears throat> One of the things you have to understand, so in, in theology, uh, and this also goes back to a guy named Leibniz, what a lot of the- theologians will say is that this is the best possible world. What they mean by that is out of all the ways God could have created the universe, this is the best one. And you say, well, Zach, that doesn't make any sense at all. Couldn't God have made a world where we didn't fall? Couldn't God have made a world where there were way more palm trees? Couldn't God have made a world where uh, people didn't get sick? Couldn't God have made a world all kinds of different great ways, okay? We could fly. That'd be excellent, okay? Why did God not make the world that way? And so you have to rephrase the question and say it this way. When we talk about the best possible world, we don't mean from our perspective. We mean from God's perspective. This is the world that gives God the most glory. Why did God allow mankind to fall instead of putting somebody else in the garden? Couldn't he have put somebody not like dumb Adam who wouldn't have eaten? Or how about this? He could have not created the devil, knowing that he's going to fall if he wanted just to keep everybody redeemed. Why didn't he do that? The answer to that question doesn't go beyond what I'm about to give you. It's simply this. Somehow God decided that he would get more glory by allowing mankind to fall and redeeming us instead of leaving us redeemed. This is the world that gives God the most glory. And if you say that it's not, why would he cut himself short of glory? Why would he do that? And so you have to understand that from our perspective, there's a lot of things that look messed up because we're just looking at selfish little people made out of the dirt, these little humans. We don't instead say, wait a second, maybe God has a purpose for this. Maybe God has a purpose for why things go bad and he redeems and he forgives. Maybe God gets more glory by saving some people and showing his mercy and damning others and showing his justice, okay? And showing his justice. Next, the argument doesn't have to be certain It just has to be more likely than the randomness argument. So what some people will say is, Zach, I don't like your teleological argument. I don't think it works. And I say, well, well, I'm not trying to prove this to you with certainty. I'm trying to say of the two options, which one's most likely? Most things in life are not things we know with certainty. They're things we know with probability. Which one seems more likely? That because there's design in the universe, there's a designer. Which one seems 51% more likely than not? Or that everything out of randomness moved itself with randomness and created all this complexity in design? I would say the first one seems more probable. Fred Hoyle, an English astronomer, says this. 
Would you not say to yourself, some supercalculating intellect must have designed the properties of the carbon atom. Otherwise, the chance of my finding such an atom through the blind forces of nature would be utterly minuscule. Of course you would. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a superintellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Okay? Run out of time. So let's do the second argument. I really, really like this one. This is what is called the argument from universal morality. Okay, it's called the moral argument. Sometimes it's called the axiological argument if you want to impress your friends. <clears throat> Let me tell you what this one is. We've already seen that Calvin talks about the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. This argument is very much related to that. Here's the argument. There is within the heart of humanity, no matter what country you're from, no matter what culture you're from, no matter what race you're from, there are things that we inherently know are wrong. Okay? Now, sometimes those things change a little bit. So some cultures will allow for killing, that other, or murder rather. Some cultures will allow for murder, and other cultures will define murder differently. Okay? But they all agree you can't just going around killing anyone you want whenever you want. Okay? You don't have to teach man that. That's naturally there. There are always, in every culture, laws regarding sexual immorality. Some will allow sexuality in some areas, but not in others. But they all agree that you can't have any woman anytime you want her, whether she belongs to another man or not, okay? There is something within the heart of mankind that inherently knows that we break God's law. Thieves don't like to be stolen from, okay? It's really weird. They steal, but you steal from them, and they feel wronged, okay? There's something inside when when we commit adultery, when we walk in pride, when we beat somebody up for no reason, there's something inside of us that feels shame, that feels guilt. Where does that come from? Because again, if we're just globs of goo that have just changed over time, there should be no inherent morality. There should be no inherent morality. At least it should be misfiring a lot more often than it seems to do. The Bible also speaks to this, Romans 3.32, talking about idolaters. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Talking about those who commit idolatry and because they have rejected what is different from them, God, they seek out what is the same from them. Idols and also in the case of uh, Romans 1, homosexuality, okay? Now, C.S. Lewis is one of the ones that's the most famous for explicating this argument. So I've got three long quotes from him here, but they are worth reading because C.S. Lewis is such a great writer and he's a lot of fun. And go watch the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, it teaches a weird ransom theory of the atonement, but it's good, okay? It's good. It's a good show. What interests me about all these remarks, he's talking about when somebody wrongs somebody else, is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior, which he expects the other man to know about. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong and that there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what are right and wrong. So he's saying, if you wrong somebody, you cut in line, you steal from them, whatever it is, and they say, hey, don't cut in front of me or don't steal from me. They're not simply saying, I personally don't like that as an opinion. They're saying there must be a standard and you've broken it or else how can we have this conversation? We both have to agree that there's some standard of right and wrong or else we can't even communicate. You knew it was wrong to steal. I knew it was wrong for you to steal from me. How is that possible? How is that possible? Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in real right and wrong, capitalized, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. 
He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining, it's not fair, before you can say Jack Robinson. That's a great little uh, old British-y thing. A nation may say treaties do not matter, but then next minute they spoil their case by saying that the particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties do not matter, and if there's no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there is no law of nature, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? These then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that all human beings all over the earth has this, have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. Okay? They know the law of nature, they break it. God has so written his laws upon our hearts that legalism is always the killer for Christianity. People who are licentious do so because of legalism. They say, I can't keep the rules, so forget it. People that follow legalism do so because they think, I can keep the rules, and then they're always in despair. God has written his law on our heart, and he has given us his law and his word, and they are impossible to keep. We cannot keep them as sinners, which is why we need grace, which is why we need the gospel, which is why salvation is by faith alone. We cannot do the things that God has asked, like be perfect. That's a command. Every time you're not perfect, like God is, you're sinning. So a lot, okay? That's why we need grace. Here's a great example of the uh, moral argument. I really like this one. It's an example of a pirate code, all right? Not the pirates today with the AK-47s and Captain Phillips. Those aren't real pirates. Those ruin piracy for me, okay? These are real pirates. This comes from 1722. It is the pirate code of Bartholomew Roberts, okay? And here, listen to this. I wanted to put more of this in here, but I don't want to make your notes too long. These are a lot of fun. These are pirates. You know what pirates do? They rape and they steal and they plunder and they swashbuckle, and they something about scurvy and pirates, okay? They're not good guys. They're constantly hanged for their crimes, and a lot of them are involved in a lot of like witchcraft and weird superstition because they're at the sea, and there's Davy Jones Locker. These are not good guys, and yet they're fine raping and murdering and stealing from people, but to other pirates, this is the case. Every man shall be called fairly in turn by the list on board of prizes, because over and above their proper share, they're allowed a shift of clothes. But if they defraud the company to the value of even one dollar in plate, jewels, or money, they shall be marooned. So if you steal a plate from the pirates, you get left on a desert island to die, okay? If any man rob another, he shall have his nose and ears slit and be put ashore where he shall be sure to encounter hardships. A lot of times when they would maroon pirates, they would leave them with a uh, flintlock pistol with one round, okay? So they could, if they wanted to speed up that process, they could. I'd use it for some excellent hunting or something, but that's what they, uh, that's what they had. If any man shall be found seducing one of the latter sex, that's women, okay? And carrying her to sea in disguise, he shall suffer death. No women are allowed on pirate ships, okay? That causes a lot of problems, causes a lot of jealousy and these kind of things. Onshore, you know, there's, there's winches or something. Again, a pirate term. There's these ladies, but you can't take her on the ship. None shall strike another on board the ship, but every man's quarrel shall be ended onshore by sword or pistol, okay? These are some great rules. I kind of feel like some of this should be reinstituted, okay? That would be excellent. So you don't get to fight on ship. You don't get to steal from other pirates. You don't get to take a woman on board and cause all this jealousy so everybody's killing one another and these kind of things. There are these interesting uh, cases in pirate history of women who would go on board ships and be pirates for years and nobody even knew that they were women, which is crazy how uh, uh, Anne Bonny is the name of one. Another one's name is, uh, escapes me. I used to be smart and then I had kids. Okay. Um, <laughs> now here's my question to you. <clears throat> What makes an action morally wrong if God does not exist? Okay? 
you can appeal to a few things. You can say, an individual's opinion makes something right or wrong. This is very popular in kind of our postmodern culture. What's true for you is true for me. What's right for you is right for me. You live your truth, I'll live my truth, okay? The problem with saying that there is no absolute truth, that everybody just determines their own truth, is that means that a person who enjoys assaulting children, you cannot say that that's bad. You can say that works for them. And as long as they can get away with it legally, they should do it. And for a person who believes that assaulting children is bad, you say, well, that's just their opinion. What works for them works for them. I heard a professor at UC Berkeley, who's a philosophy professor, say that if assaulting children is your thing, that's just your thing, okay? That's just your thing. You can't say it's wrong. You can say society doesn't like it, but I don't think that's what we're saying when we lock up a pedophile. I think we're saying they've actually done wrong, capital W, wrong, okay? So if God doesn't exist, you could say that an individual's opinion is what makes something right or wrong, but really then you're just saying there is no morality, If it's just everyone's opinion and they can have contradictory opinions, there is no morality. You'll hear atheists say, you can be a good atheist. And my problem with that is I always ask, what do you mean by good? You can be a good atheist. What does that mean? You can do things society says is nice. You didn't say I could do things others think are nice. You said good. Good is an objective standard. It's opposite is bad. What does that mean if God doesn't exist? You could say what makes an action morally wrong is a society's opinion. If I can get a bunch of people to think something is good or bad, then that is our standard of right and wrong. That's really what most people say when they talk about right or wrong. They talk about how culture changes, and so today we accept things we used to not accept, etc. What's the problem with that view? Well, it's just the individual view blown up. Remember, there were a lot of Jews that were t- totally fine, or I'm sorry, a lot of Nazis that were totally fine gassing Jews in the 1940s. Just because a big society says this is good, that doesn't make it good because another society can say it's bad. Now who's right? That doesn't help. That doesn't give you any standard of morality. If your standard of morality can change, you don't have a standard of morality. If your standard of morality has contradictions in it, you don't have a standard of morality. Well, there's a smarter view that I think is really evil, but it is a smarter view than the other two. It's what's called utilitarianism. If you want to know more about that, we did a lecture on ethics Okay? And that idea is an action is good if it produces more overall pleasure than pain for the greatest number of people. An action is good if it produces more overall pleasure than pain for the greatest number of people. What this view is trying to do is find something objective on which to base ethics. Here's a huge problem with that view. You ready? If a bunch of people get a lot of pleasure out of having a child assaulted in that view, then it's okay. Okay? That's a pretty big problem with that ethical system. We don't have time to tear apart utilitarianism. Basically, it's the devil. But you can go learn about it on that other lecture. Okay? Let me give you some critiques of the moral argument. Number one, it doesn't mean that an action is moral just because everyone does it or immoral just because people say you shouldn't do it. Okay? So what they'll say is just because societies agree that you uh, shouldn't murder people, all you've proved is that societies agree that you shouldn't murder people. You've not proved that it's actually bad, that it's actually wrong, okay? A lot of societies allow sexual immorality to some degree throughout world history. We wouldn't say that's good as Christians. Number two, you cannot confuse an is and an ought. This is what is known as Hume's guillotine. Let me explain what this is. All we see is something happening, the is. We don't see whether or not it should have happened, the ought, So when I see somebody kill somebody else, the only thing I can claim objectively is this person killed this person. I cannot jump to the conclusion that they should or should not have done that. As soon as I've done that, I've moved away from the facts and I've started reading an opinion on what should and shouldn't happen and ought 
onto, all, to, uh, onto what I've observed, which is just an is, okay? So what Hume would say is you see people do things, you don't see whether or not they should or shouldn't do things. How could you see that? That's not empirical. That's something that you read onto the situation with your presuppositions. It's not something that you actually get from the situation. What about this one? What about crazy people who think really evil things are good? Okay? If there is this standard of morality that's in the heart of all men, how come some men seem to not have that standard of morality? Now, C.S. Lewis's response to that is that his rule is not exceptionless. He's saying, on the whole, humanity realizes there is something wrong with us, but there are the sociopaths, there are the psychopaths, and they are the exception rather than the rule. Number four, perhaps the conscience evolved to maximize safety and reproduction. Okay? <clears throat> what some will say is the reason that mankind has religion, the reason that we have conscience, is it's an evolutionary trait. Why? Because it helps keep our species alive. If we're all killing one another, it's very hard to reproduce. What every species wants to do is to keep its species alive. Okay? So when two male lions fight each other for a female, they don't usually kill each other. They kind of posture until one backs down. They'll kill other animals, but because they're of the same species, there's this resistance to killing one another. Okay? Or two snakes will fight and they'll roll up with each other. They don't bite each other and inject poison into each other. Why? Because they're of the same species. Animals and humans, which are a, a more special kind of animal, uh, we fight other species. We kill or eat other species. We typically have a resistance to killing our own species. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is a West Point psychologist, and he talks about how in his studies of combat, only 15 to 20% of soldiers in combat actually even fire their weapon at the enemies. So that means those storming the beaches of Normandy, for every 115 people are shooting, the others are not at all. They will tend to the wounded, they will pass ammunition, they will do all these kind of things because there's such a resistance. They're not afraid of dying, they're afraid of killing. There's such a resistance to killing people of your own species. They found 3,000 muskets at Gettysburg where the rounds had just been just stacked on top of each other in the rifles because they couldn't fire at the enemy. They would load one of those mini balls, stuff it down, act like they were firing, load another one. So they'd find rifles with eight different rounds in them, and they found 3,000 of those because there's such a resistance to killing your own species. What a, an evolutionary biologist will say is that is from evolution. It helps keep you alive, okay? Why do you have sexual uh, ethics? Because it helps make sure that somebody's not going to come and kill your kids, steal your kids, take your wife, whatever it might be. That's part of a response to this argument. What about those with mental or emotional deficiencies who don't seem to show what we think of as a conscience? What do you do with that? Number six, what do you do with this one? What about animals who seem to feel shame when they do something wrong? If God has placed his law in the heart of humans, when your dog goes to the bathroom on your floor and you say, bad dog, why does that dog kind of whimper and look like it has shame? It looks sad. They've done studies with monkeys where uh, a monkey will kill another monkey just randomly, and then that monkey becomes depressed and withdraws from the group and doesn't want, Where does that come from if uh, conscience is something that God has given to humans? What about issues? I think this is a good argument. What about issues that are not as clear as murder, like coveting, contraception, or lying in wartime? So what they'll say is, okay, Zach, I'm fine saying that humans agree we shouldn't just murder people randomly. And most humans would agree that we shouldn't just sleep with whoever we want. But what about issues that are debated? What about in vitro fertilization? What about homosexuality? What about these kind of things that our culture fights each other on? What do we do when entire cultures all across the world disagree on one of these issues? That doesn't seem to be very implanted in the heart of man. That seems to be contrived socially. One group's totally fine with it, and the other group is not fine with it. A few further thoughts. 
the moral argument still shows, even in light of one through seven, that without God, there is no standard of morality. At the end of the day, if you are going to be a true atheist, you have to say that there is no objective right or wrong. You can say we don't like when people assault children. You cannot say it's bad. You can say we don't like that the Holocaust happened, but you cannot say it's bad. That is the worldview you have to live in if you are truly atheistic. If you say, well, we invent our morality. If we invented it, it's not real. Okay? There is no morality. And the second one, I think this is a really strong argument. If God doesn't exist, then real evil doesn't exist either. You can't hold both that you don't think that God exists because there's evil in the world and then also say that good and evil are subjective and relative to each person. <clears throat> so here's what, here's what the argument is. Most people that I have met that are atheistic will be quick to judge the God of the Bible. Why is genocide allowed? Why, uh, you know, why does the fall happen? Why does cancer happen? Why are women not allowed to come as close as men to the temple in the Old Testament? Why, why are all these things the case if God is good? And what they're saying there is God is bad. A lot of atheists will say, the reason I don't follow God is because when I was a kid, I was molested, or my mom died, or I tried to do everything in my power to serve God, and life dealt me a bad hand. In all those arguments, what they're saying is, I don't like God because he's done something evil, which assumes that he exists, so he can be evil, okay? I was at uh, Benihana recently, because it's delicious, and the chef was originally a guy who grew up in church, and we had this conversation. And he said that he no longer believes in God because he felt like he did everything he could for God and God didn't answer his prayers. And I didn't want to do this to him as he's flipping shrimp in his hat. But I wanted to say, well, you got to pick one or the other. Either God doesn't exist and therefore nothing bad has happened to you. He has not wronged you if he doesn't exist. Or he does exist and you're mad at him. But you have to pick. You can go either route, but you have to pick one of those two. You can't hold the contradiction that you're holding. In the words of the early church leader, Boethius, by the way, Boethius is a major player. The most read book in the Middle Ages outside of the Bible is The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, okay? Most read book in the Middle Ages outside of the Bible. He says this, we cannot raise the question, how can there be evil if God exists without raising the second, how can there be good if he exists not, okay? If you wanna say there can't be a God because there's evil in the world, well, then you also have to say there has to be a God because there's also good in the world. You end up contradicting yourself. Let me pray for us and Jeffrey's gonna come on up. We'll do a little Q&A. Let's pray. Almighty God, we confess that you are great, that you are holy, that you are eternal, that you are holy other, that you have always existed from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, and yet you've made us out of the dirt to worship you, and we confess that we are not your equal. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you for these arguments. I pray that our, our faith might be strengthened. I pray for those in here who are doubting like I am all the time. I pray that they would be encouraged. That Christianity is a safe place to wrestle. It's a safe place to ask questions. It's a safe place to doubt. Because at the end of the day, these things are true whether we doubt them or not. And so would you help us? We want to ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen.